Hello, and welcome to State of Crime. One state, two murders, lots of crime. With Elena and Kaylin, and Kaylin's extra special guest, Maria. Yay! <laughs> so, I lucked out this week, and I didn't have to do any research on a case. I get to have a lazy week, because Maria here is going to take over for this episode. Bear with me. It is her first time. Give her a break. Give her lots of love. Please. She's going to do great. I, yeah. Yes, I'm, I'm really hoping. So, all right. My case is actually fairly new. It's not anything that's old or historical. Um, this is actually within the last two years that this has happened, and he's actually set to stand trial in April. So this is something that's still ongoing. Um, it's not a closed case by any means. Meh. So Meh. don't really like these ones, and <laughs> I'm more of a cold case that's okay. kind of person. Um, ongoing Why? cases really aren't my thing. I don't know. I guess I kind of like... <laughs> Reading up on a case and then still having that, like, thought that it, it still needs to be solved, that there's still more to it that we need to know. So, I guess the the diving deeper. Okay. Where so, I can like dig deeper. Yeah. Being and the detective. Yes. And I like asking questions. Like, that's my big one. Kaylin gets text messages from me after <laughs> podcasts all the time where I'm kind of freaking out and losing my mind. It's like, so funny. One of my favorites, <laughs> she... <laughs> It was after one of our first couple. Yeah, one of your first couple podcasts that I had listened to. And I remember texting her and being like, what? What is happening? Like, this does not make any sense to me. Like, what do you mean? Like, it was just, it was crazy. That's awesome. And I want to say it was the one where, like, the body was moved, but only part of the body was moved. And oh, that was the one we did where, like, when they found the body. That was my case, wasn't yes, it? and it blew that me was, away. Was it Iowa where... When they found the body, like, a bunch of it was missing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I was like, how, why? I was like, why? Like, somebody, did somebody go back? Like, did mm -hmm. animals take them up? Like, what, why only part of this body did they find? So that, that kind of stuff definitely piques my interest. Cool. Yes. I like the wicked and the morbid things yeah. in the world, I guess. <laughs> I'm trying to find that text. It's not going so well for me at the moment. <laughs> it, it was pretty graphic. <laughs> <laughs> We'll jump in when you find it. So. so this happened in October of 2017. So in the fall, which is kind of odd, I guess, for Vermont. It's pretty cold up there in the fall time, correct? Right, yeah. Well, Vermont is a big, you know, it's very far north. Of mm -hmm. course, it borders Canada. I believe there's quite a bit of skiing in Vermont, believe right. it or not. Not that, you know, that part, we don't usually associate the eastern United States with mm -hmm. a lot of mountains, but I, I do believe there's some fairly decent skiing in Vermont. So. Right. Well, and I know here, like, it gets pretty cold when fall sets in. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, for this to be, like, an, something that happened outside in the middle of the daytime, um, lots of people heard it, lots of people were already outside. So that, I mean, a lot of this is kind of just, like, crazy to me, like, why are you outside when it's kind of cold out and, <laughs> you know, you're, you're kind of acting crazy. So this is Ada Garung. He is a refugee from Nepal. Him and his wife came over with her mother and their eight-year-old daughter seeking refuge here, and they had moved to Vermont. That's where they were set. They lived in a quiet little community with lots of people around, so neighbors very close. It's not like they were spread out in a rural community. They were in the city of Burlington. Oh, which, yeah. Well, yeah, we just talked about yeah. in the last case. So to kind of go back a little bit on that day that it happened... On Thursday, October 12th, Ada Garung checked himself out of UVM Medical Center and he had gone home after he had already voluntarily checked himself in just a few days prior. Now, why was he there? So we actually get into that, but he okay. was there due to a domestic dispute with his wife where okay. he had checked himself in for a mental health problem, he said. So he went home and that's when it happened. He struck his wife, Yogaswari Kadka in the hands, arms, and skull with a meat cleaver. Oh my god. And that's according to neighboring witnesses who saw what was happening. So I, were they in the house when he did this? So that's what I'm assuming after kind of reading more into it is I'm assuming it started inside because the mother-in-law was found in the entryway where his wife was found in the driveway. Oh god. So meat cleaver got some use. It did, definitely. <laughs> so witness... A witness named Sam Rollo had stated to police that he had heard his wife screaming from about five houses down, so very loud. And he said, and it was definitely recognizable that it was not fake. 
that she was needing help and needing assistance. So he then had approached the scene and that's where he had found what was happening along with about six other witnesses who were standing around screaming for him to stop. Talusa Ramal is his mother-in-law and she was found in a seated position in the entryway of the home slumped over with blows to the head. So he had hit her multiple times with the meat cleaver in the back of the skull, but she had survived. Oh. And she so was, she was still alive. She was still alive, yes. And she, as far as I know, has recovered, but is still going through outpatient therapy, things like that. Um, it's going to be a long road for her, is what they're saying. Um, definitely not something that she's probably going to need assistance for the rest of her life yeah, because of this. How horrible. Um, and, her, and her daughter is, is gone. And they left an eight-year-old daughter behind. So he's in jail. She is in the care of a grandfather. Okay. Um, did he harm his eight-year-old daughter at all? He did not. There was no inclinations that he had ever done any harm to her. He just, basically what I was getting from them coming over is they were just escaping what was happening in Nepal. And they wanted a better life for her. So, so they, they gave it to her. Um, and she was at school during the time of Thank God. this murder and when it was happening. Thank Yeah. Kelly Daughtry, an executive director of Steps to End Domestic Violence in Vermont, she had mentioned that it, it is a rising problem, that it's something that's been happening. And I did read a few different cases that had said the same exact thing, domestic now, violence. In Vermont in general yes. or within the Nepalese community? So or? in Vermont in general. And she said, and this is kind of where that cultural barrier lies, where they don't really know, I guess, that those resources are out there for them as well as us as Americans, where we know about these things. Yeah. She said that it is a rising problem. And with the refugees they do have coming in, she's trying to make changes to where they do have those resources for things like this, where they can seek mental health, you know. They can go for domestic violence. You know, women can go to a women's battered shelter and not feel, you know, different because she's from a different country and already sought refuge here. She doesn't want them to feel that way. And right. she thinks that maybe they kind of failed everybody in that way there's that pressure maybe to be like the model refugee mm -hmm. sort of a thing where we sought refuge and now we have to come here and be perfect people right. so that okay yeah he was arrested the day after it happened he is currently being held at Chittenden regional correction facility on charges of second degree murder and that was changed Right after he had pleaded insanity, they had dropped it from first degree murder and attempted murder to second degree. Okay. And I think that's where it plays into his pleading insanity, kind of didn't know what he was doing. I kind of want to know, do we have any information, are you going to get there, about like the days prior to yes. this? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to know like what happened leading up Me to too. this. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No. And that's, I, I do. And if there was a, a history more. of domestic violence. So, and <clears throat> I think with, because of them coming over from Nepal, I didn't get to read into their life over there other than they, they were just seeking refuge here yeah. from there in that time. And they moved here in 2013. So, I mean, that's kind of the rise of everything that was happening over there. So I don't know if he was suffering any mental health in Nepal or if they were suffering any domestic violence problems over there. From the sounds of it from his wife when she had spoke to police prior to this, that there wasn't any issues. She didn't think that there was any issue. But again, culture may be a little bit different. I don't know what it's like in Nepal. I don't know. Well, the Nepal, difference between men and women or yeah. how they're treated or what life is supposed to be like. Nepal's one of those Buddhist countries, you know, it borders Tibet. Mm -hmm. It's generally viewed to be a fairly peaceful culture. Like I said, it's infused with Buddhism. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there are incidents of religious violence within Buddhism, but it's very, very rare. Um, so, and as far as I know, Nepal's not known for a really high crime rate or anything mm -hmm. like that. They did have a very devastating earthquake a few years ago, which I'm wondering if that's what they were possibly fleeing, but, right. you know, and there's poverty and some of those sorts of issues, mm -hmm. but yeah, this is... Well, and my thing is kind of coming back to where they were wanting that life for their daughter. So mm -hmm. I wonder if that maybe played it, that it was just wasn't working mm -hmm. out for them there. So back to where he was, everything was changed to second-degree murder. Um, during his arraignment, the judge set him held with no bail because he believed that he knew what he was doing, that he was capable of being in the right state of mind. But he was forced to undergo a mental competency test where he needed to be evaluated just to prove that... Well, I think that's pretty standard in yeah. any case. 
just to make sure. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. in, in that sense, especially when he was stating, you know, I, I need help. You know, my mental health is not good. You know, that sort of thing. Sarah Pauls is his public defender, and she's the one that's been entering in his not guilty pleas. So he has had to have an interpreter in court where he is said to be seen with no facial expression. No, his head is hung low when he's being told, you know, in his, his interpretation from the judge. He's just kind of seen as like, you know, it's it's almost like nothing, I guess, in like, my opinion. But at the same time, I don't really know because I'm not there. So I also wonder if that's a defense thing. If the, If his defense team is telling him... You need to lay low. Don't make any sudden movements. Right. Don't make any like facial expressions. Let us do what we do. Exactly. You sit there and do what you can to let us do our job. Be, yes, being his state. Exactly. Yeah. Right. yeah. And that could be it, where they're just telling him, you know, don't say a word, don't even interact, just listen. We will take care of it because we can yeah. hear it as well. And that's probably what they're telling him, and him hanging his head and kind of like. Maybe trying to hide his face is probably part of that because if they're trying to tell him, like, you need to just sit here, listen, do, let us do our jobs. And he's trying to figure out, like, how do I do that without, like, like showing any expression on my face. So he's just going to, like, hang his head and right. try to hide so that his defense can do what they need mm-hmm. to do. Right. And that's where they keep throwing in that insanity that he... You know, he can't control his own emotions. He can't control his own actions. That sort of thing. Where I'm kind of getting a different story that he can. Well, and yeah, we do get into that. I think if he's able to sit through his trials and mm-hmm. his arraignments and stuff like that and be able to sit there, basically kind of hiding his face, hanging his head, not but really saying compliant. anything. But he's compliant. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, but I think that if he can't control his emotions or any of that or his actions, he wouldn't be able to just sit there right, and let everything that's happening happen or people saying things about him. He wouldn't be able to do that. Right. I would see things as being a trigger. Yes. You know, well, it depends, though, too, on what type of mental illness are we talking about? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, one of the big things, too, is this total flat affect that people often have. They're catatonic states, mm-hmm. semi-catatonic states. He could be in shock over what happened. Right. We don't know. And plus, imagine that you're sitting in a courtroom. You said he needs an interpreter. Mm-hmm. There's probably so much being said that he doesn't understand. And so he may just be kind of retreating within himself. Right. And see, what's crazy is, and we'll get into it a little bit more too, is that that interpreter, I feel like, does he really need it? Okay. Just because of what I'll get into where he, he's obviously communicating with people. So does he really need the interpreter? Is it just more for his understanding of our laws or is he kind of playing something that the courts don't really know about with him having the state of a refugee? Yeah. So the Chittenden state attorney, Sarah Green, she begs to differ on the whole insanity thing that he, you know, obviously is capable of being aware. And she visited the crime scene and that is where she gets that proof. Um, she said that it was devastating. The sidewalk was covered in blood. The driveway was covered. The entryway was splattered and it was, it pooled all over where the mother-in-law was slumped over in her seated position. It was obviously just pooling off of her. So she said it was clear starting inside the home Mm -hmm. that what he had did to lead to outside, he wasn't stopping. I mean, he was, he was getting a job done. Well, he chased her down, obviously. She had fled the home Mm -hmm. and he chases her into the street. That's. Yes. Intense. After beating her mother. Yeah. I mean, it just, how do you, how do you go from being inside the home? The mother's found in the doorway and she's found outside. So you, you started in the kitchen where the knife had come from. Right. To the entryway. Do they know? To did, the outside. Did he attack the mother-in-law first and then attack his wife? Or did he attack the wife? She tried to interfere, so he attacked her. Then he goes, you know right. what I'm saying? And I think what I'm getting from it, what I've read, is that it, it started with the mother-in-law. Okay. To get out of the way. To kind of, and I think that it started as an argument. But there's really no clear detail because obviously the mother-in-law being incapacitated, the, the daughter being dead. Um, nobody can really give that clear inclination on what happened and witnesses didn't see what happened inside the home. They just heard the screams and saw what was happening outside. outside. It would make a lot of sense if it had started with the husband and the wife. The wife starts running and the mom, her mom gets into it and was like, you need to chill. And And he's like, no. Mm -hmm. And he tries to kill her. And then when he thinks she's dead, he then goes the rest of the way out to the wife. That makes, I think to me, that makes the most sense. Then like, 
going from the kitchen into like the front door and like, oh, here's my mother-in-law. Let right. me kill her real quick. And then I'm going to go chase my wife <laughs> I down. Think, yeah, it was more of like doing it to get her out of the way mm-hmm. where she was probably stopping him or trying right. to slow him down. Yeah. Um, it's like good for you. I mean, I'm, to put up a fight like that, yeah. And if that is the case, for somebody to just repeatedly hit you with a meat cleaver and you still somewhat slow him down. But I mean... That's it's just, just so incredibly horrific. It I mean, is, and it's devastating. And to think that she now has to wake up and she didn't have her daughter and, you know, all of that happened to them. A huge sacrifice mm-hmm. that that mom made. Yeah, gave. right. Yeah. yeah. And as a mother, like, you, your heart can't. Yeah, because she was literally, like, will, she was giving her life to help her to daughter. To help her daughter, right. you yeah. know. Um, Burlington police. So this happened a week prior. So they had made contact with Ada at a, um, a deli where he had gone inside seeking help. Um, just kind of out of nowhere, went inside stating that he and his wife had a domestic dispute. He committed a crime and he needs help. He's having mental problems. He said, so, um, they had contacted police and told him, you know, just sit tight. The police will come and, and they'll, they'll help you. Um, he had explained to police that there was an altercation with his wife. How old is he? I'm sorry. To so he's again. 32. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, no, 39. Yoga Swaru is 32. All right. And the mother-in-law was 54. Okay. Um, so he talks to police and the police then are acted on an investigation inside the home where he says this altercation happened. He leads them to the house, takes them inside, and, and they didn't see any evidence that there was any kind of a fight or a struggle or anything with him and his wife. So they had then made contact with her at her, her job. They had gone to find her at a local motel where she was working. And she has stated that um, her husband and her did get into a fight. And they were in an argument. She didn't believe that there was any crime that had been committed. Um, he did put his hands on her, but she didn't feel like it was anything that she was scared of him or that he was being malicious. I think she probably interpreted as maybe he was just grabbing her to hold her. That's kind of what she was giving to police was that it was just more of a... He didn't beat her in Right, other words. more of just kind of a disagreement where they were just being a little physical with each other. Or is this something that happens all the time and she was covering for him? Right, or is this, again, something that they've this has been happening and this is just her everyday, you know, normal status with him. Because that is another... Okay, but this is where I'm going to interrupt here. He's the one, though, who went to a deli, weird place to seek help. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. This is very strange to me. And the mental illness thing is kind of weird because 39 is a little old Mm -hmm. for any mental illness to manifest itself. Most right. of them start manifesting either in adolescence, mm-hmm. into your 20s. But, you know, so there's some, there's a lot of weirdness here. Unless it's... So how long after... You said they moved here in 2013. Mm-hmm. And this, this happened, happened in 2017. So this is four years yes. after they moved from Nepal. So I guess it's a little late for like a culture shock type, type of thing. Or like something that may... Because before I realized how long between mm-hmm. thing, between the time that they moved here to the time that the crime happened is he may have had whatever mental illness. He may have had it his whole life and it just wasn't really manifesting itself until something big. There was a big change in his life. Like, a big stress. Yes. Like him Stressor. Mo- the, right. moving the family to a new country in this culture shock or whatever else could have happened. But with it being four years between... I don't really see that being a big... I feel like there would have been a few more red flags that would have sprouted yeah, themselves exactly. along the way that would have progressed. Mm-hmm. I mean, at least somebody would have noticed something. And, and like I said, the fact that he's self-reporting this initial right. incident... At a local deli of all places instead is, of like going to the police department or like... It's very strange. It is very strange. And she's just at work like everything's normal yeah, and like dory and, mm-hmm. and here he's like trying to almost turn himself in or trying to to seek that help. Mm -hmm. So after they talk to her and she tells them that, yes, he does suffer from, you know, mental instability of some sort and never really kind of dwelled into what it was, but that he was taking medication. But she had suspected that he wasn't taking it. He was supposed to be. But she said that there were some different changes in his behavior that was triggering her to believe that he was possibly skipping out on his meds. Um, so, but again, she told him she didn't believe that there was any crime that had been committed and they left it at that. 
Um, they had offered to help him reach out to some resources, and that's where he was then transported to UVM. And that's where he had voluntarily checked himself in after the police told him, well, we can take you there, but you're going to have to go through the process to do it yourself. So he did. Um, but that also then gives him the option to check himself out after 72 hours, mm -hmm. which he then did. did. Um, so after he checks out of UVM, he goes home. That's when the tragedy happens. Witnesses say that they saw him still wearing his hospital bracelet. Oh, my gosh. So this kind of leads me to believe that he literally checked himself out, went home, and did this. Yeah. Like immediately. Immediately. Right. Like there was very little time left. Right. See, but this is all very strange because if he were there for those 72 hours on a hold, mm -hmm. you know, they would have found out what medications are you on. Right. He would have been given meds See, in and, the hospital. Right. They don't, was there anything they found at that time? So they won't release anything. Okay. The Burlington police has reached out to UVM, but because of privacy with HIPAA. their patients mm -hmm. and HIPAA, they won't release anything. And there's no search warrant that's been presented to them. Okay. So they're, they don't have to. And I mean, they, they won't. Yeah. So unless they get a warrant, they can't, they can't yeah. unless yeah. the state. Yeah. So, I mean, they really have nothing on this gentleman because the hospital would have helped. That would have been a huge help to know, okay, do you have his diagnosis based upon what his medication is for? Why was he not? Is he schizophrenic? Is he, because he was found screaming as he was chopping away at his wife that she betrayed me, she betrayed me. Repeatedly screaming. So that's kind of where it comes back into that interpreter. Does he need the interpreter only for the understanding? Because he communicated to the deli worker, I committed a crime, domestic violence with my wife. Well, and there's levels of literacy here too. Yeah. Because he could very well be very literate in mm -hmm. English. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Very fluent able to carry on but when you're talking about legal things right you're now in you know this is a very very right. specialized vocabulary that even a lot of native english speakers that's what i was gonna don't right. always know yeah. what these words mean and yeah. so that's that yeah and that's where it's probably mostly for the understanding because it just didn't make sense that if he's communicating these things people are understanding him and the police are able to understand him enough to help him that yeah I, yeah i think that the translator is probably for him to be able to fully understand and comprehend what is happening and what mm -hmm. the legal, legal proceedings are right. so that he, like in his native tongue, so he can like fully, fully understand, understand it. Right. Yeah, that makes <clears throat> sense. So, this, again, this is where, you know, I wrote about that his mother was found slumped over in the seated position. And this, she was found, obviously, after all of the disarray was happening in the street that people had noticed there's this woman sitting in the entryway of the home with the door open. Um, but video was taken from a witness. They had videoed the event. Um, one gentleman was actually brave enough to approach him and hold a gun on him, demanding that he stop. And police were able to professionally, you know, determine that this man is not malicious. He's just trying to stop what's happening. And they were able to, to configure all of that out without any problems. Mm -hmm. Which, to say in this day is, first of all, super dangerous for that guy to do. Because with police coming on to any sort, especially with it being like a murder or at this point, they I'm sure they don't know exactly what's going on. They get a phone mm -hmm. call. This man is beating or using there's the murder happening. Happening. there's there's like this assault or murder right. homicide happening and they roll up on the scene and some guy's got a gun that is a very dangerous thing mm -hmm. to do and that man is lucky that they did not shoot i'm sure when he when they pulled up he's probably like nope put it down yeah if he was mm -hmm. smart that's what he would have done right it's, it's still and from what i'm getting yes that is what happened and they were very professional in how they approached the situation and the chief had expressed that in an right. interview. You know, and Vermont that, is a very gun-friendly state. It's, yes. a, it's much like Idaho. You have a lot of gun owners. They mm -hmm. they know the rules. Yes. They know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So yeah. And he did state that. And it, there, there's a lot of training, he said, that goes into it. But obviously with this type of situation, he said that they were definitely unprepared. But the way that they handled everything and they were able to detain him just fine was was perfect. Yeah. Um, he said, unfortunately, you know, there was the death that had happened. They weren't able to save her, but they had used a, 
uh, tourniquets, which he said mm. that they're not common to use there no. to help save the mother-in-law. Okay. And he said, and they, they had deserved a higher level of appreciation for reaching out to her to make the extra steps to take her, you know, to save yeah. her life. Um, cause who knows, you know, and the one thing he says he regrets is just had they been there one minute earlier, you know, one minute could have determined whether she lived or she died. lived or died. Yeah. You know, um, a medical examiner has since while he's going through all of his trials and cases of that he is mentally stable to stand trial, that he is aware of what he did and he knows why he did it. You know, he was angry. He knows that he's got something going on, but he is capable to stand trial and we will see what happens on April 29th when that starts. So I think that this, this actually surprisingly pissed me off less than I thought it would. <laughs> Way less than my case. I feel like a little I like, I don't know what happened. Over the place Maybe you purged all that anger. I may have, but it's strange because it does seem like he's got something wrong. Now, right. whether or not that impacts his judgment on what he's doing or what he was doing while he decided to murder his wife and tried to murder his mother-in-law, mm -hmm. that's a different story. But there's clearly something wrong. Yeah, well, like I said, you know, my, my, my armchair diagnosis here, <laughs> because I'm such an expert <laughs> on these things, really he seems like paranoid schizophrenic yeah. sort of mm -hmm. or under that umbrella mm -hmm. you know the, the right. she betrayed me she betrayed me that i committed a crime even though he didn't you, i you want know to know right. i want to know what they were arguing what about. were they arguing about why was he screaming she betrayed me mm -hmm. but just a few days prior he's turning himself in for a domestic dispute now, that they had had but there's no no clear answer about what they were even arguing about. So I'm curious is like, so he, they were arguing when he decided, when they had gotten into the altercation mm -hmm. and he decided to try to turn himself in to figure out what was going on. She was like, no, it was fine. We were just arguing. And he's like, I'm going to go get some help during the 72 hour hold. They had to have done some sort of therapy with him. I'm curious is if this therapy made him kind of like sink everything in a little more. And instead of helping him, it turned it against itself and it just made him more angry. So when he was able to leave, he's like, fuck this. I'm out. She's dying. Mm -hmm. Right. That, and that's my question. What happened while he was being examined that made him immediately leave, go home. I mean, he was still wearing the bracelet. Didn't even cut it off. Didn't even That's take like the it first off. thing you do when you leave the hospital is get that that off. I hate them. I don't like them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and to just go home, go in the kitchen and start this. Like, just were they arguing? I mean, did he enter the home and just instantly start <laughs> yelling and being on a rampage about what had happened? Yeah. Or were they standing in the kitchen and he comes well, home and they're surprised, like, oh, didn't he? Home. Didn't she come and get him from the hospital? Do you know what I mean? Like that's normal too. Right. You know, did, how did when he, he leave? If the because it says the police transported him to UVM, so he rode with the police there. Right. So did he take a taxi from UVM? Exactly. Yeah. You also have to think that it's like 2017 Uber, Lyft, taxi. Right. These are I all mean, big things. That did, it had had there been communication with his wife? Had she visited? Right. Him? Do you know what I mean? There's so many. Well, he checked himself out. Did the hospital maybe call him a taxi, stating, "Oh, well, here, you know, let's help get you home since the police brought you here." Well, I don't think that on what you said about if she visited him, I don't think that they're allowed visitors during seven seventy-two hour holds. Well, see, this isn't a hold though, Kaylin. This, he's this a, was voluntary a voluntary check-in for just an evaluation. He just wanted to be evaluated, is what he had said. Yeah. After the police had offered that resource to him. So, I mean, it still just loops back. Why? Why did you, I mean, did you, were, did she pick you up? Were you arguing in the car? And did it just lead into the house and it just escalate from there? And they had to have been evaluating him. I want to know what they what found. Yeah, what's yeah. It, and why hasn't that been subpoenaed? That is right. crazy why? to me. Or has so it? So has it, and it's going to come up in the trial that's happening yep. in April. Oh, possibly. That's probably possibly what's going to happen. So... Yeah. But his his attorney has said in a press conference that she's going to keep pushing. Good. For a not guilty plea. Oh, not For good. insanity. So, yeah, his attorney. Okay. But the state attorney is doing everything she can to fight against it. And even the judge is stating, I mean, the medical examiner is saying 
he can withstand trial. He's gonna stand trial. Yeah. So, I mean... But there's a difference between... Do you know what I'm saying? There's a mm-hmm. difference between... Like I said, I don't know exactly what Vermont's definition of insanity is. Right. But mo- we talked about this. Yeah. Kaylin and I talked about this with last, the Alaska case, maybe? I think it was last week's episode. Yeah, but... Um, where there are, you know, the legal definition of insanity is very different than the medical definition. Uh And in most states, most often the legal definition is at the moment that you committed the crime, you did not know the difference between right and wrong. And that's a very different sort of, I don't know, burden of proof. I feel Mm -hmm. like it's also very vague. That's what I was kind of going for. It's a very broad statement to it's a very wide umbrella to shove all of these people into for them to be able to plead insanity i think there needs it it needs to be kind of shorted down a little more like a vetting process almost yes where i think that just because you were diagnosed with bipolar disorder doesn't give you the right to to plead insanity because you killed somebody because you were yes. oh, angry well, for five minutes. And you know again, what I mean? people with mental health diagnoses are far, 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 far more likely to be the victims of violent crime than the then, perpetrators. Right. And that's another part of the narrative that I think often gets lost as yeah. well because people do get so angry. They do feel like somehow that becomes a buy or an out. Mm-hmm. And... The reality is that statistically, our podcast aside, because we've had an awful lot of people ended up in mental hospitals. Thanks to you. <laughs> well, I had I no part in that. I didn't cause them to end up in the, that. That was my students. But, um, but it, you know, that's, that's a fairly rare thing mm-hmm. for the insanity plea is... V- it's quite rare for that to, you know, quote unquote work, I guess. So Right. I feel like it was more often used like we talked about with women in the historically right. because it was such a an aberration for how women were supposed to be. And I also think that the way that we test for any sort of mental illness is very different. It's very different now than it was back then. And we right. have, I feel like we have more accurate mm-hmm. testing and medical examining that goes on in that process than they did back then back then it was kind of like here let's talk to some people good luck or like lobotomies yeah yeah Yeah. but i I have to say i still feel like there's so much we don't know about mental illness yeah i feel like the stigma definitely sticks and i don't think that that's and it might be a long 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 time before we see that stigma rise from and the lack of mental treatment. illness and insanity being kind of pulled mm-hmm. together mm-hmm. i don't think that it should be those are two completely different fine yes. lines whereas insanity i feel you aren't aware of anything i mean mm-hmm. you're basically controlled as a non entity mm-hmm. Where mental illness, you are aware of what's happening. I mean, you may kind of be in that denial state or whatever, but you still are aware of your surroundings. You're still, you have that weight of right and wrong, good and evil. Whereas insanity, I I think of psychopaths, schizophrenics, you know, people who don't have a guilt or don't have a conscience and do things on an act of excitement, I guess. Well, and if you put it that way, you also have to think about the fact that, like, even though they may not have a conscience or a guilt factor in any of it, they still know that what they're doing is wrong and they still usually are deciding to do it anyway. Right. So, like, where does that sit on this? Exactly. You know what I mean? Because well, they know they... it's illegal. And I think yeah. there's and, a difference, mm-hmm, too. Yeah. Where, you know, you have people who do get excited by something like that, by doing mm-hmm. something that's taboo and not, you know allowed or something that's forbidden versus somebody who really has done something and they don't realize what they've done is wrong. Yeah. But I think that, yeah, going back to what you said, where does that line stand with that? I think that line needs to be more clearly drawn, Mm -hmm. not only in the legal system, but in the medical field too. Exactly. Right. It needs to, and I also think that our medical field and our legal system need to kind of team up to figure that out because we're going to keep having these ups and downs on an argue 
Well, let's back just, and forth. Let's debates. start first of all with much, much better mental health screening yes. and mental mental health treatment. I mean, we and live outreach. in a state yeah. where those things are practically non-existent yeah. for mm-hmm. all intents and purposes. Well, and look at how taboo it's you know mm-hmm. it is for people that oh, and again to that stigma where you try to come out and tell somebody that you're going through something, you've got a mental health problem, or you're feeling depressed, or you're feeling this, and they instantly are like, well get over it. Like yeah. it, that's just, you know, be happy. Why can't yeah. you just be happy? Well, it, I think there's a lot more to it as far as somebody coming and saying, you know, I feel like I want to kill somebody. Like it, right. that, yeah. there's an urge that I'm feeling that I just maybe need to hurt somebody. Like where can we draw a line between having somebody be crazy mm-hmm. for they are feeling something that is abnormal to them Versus feeling something that's probably been a lust for them for quite some time. And I also think that if mental illness was looked at differently, we might save a lot of people's lives. Not only just from like suicides and stuff like that, but if it wasn't so taboo to talk about, these people who have felt these urges for so long in their life and then they grow up and they end up actually hurting or killing someone probably wouldn't have happened if it wasn't so taboo for them to say something out loud. And to look for help. Exactly. Because if they they were like comfortable saying something about it at a younger age or when they, whether even if it's not younger, but whenever they notice that it's happening, if they were able to like say something to someone and get the help that they need, it probably wouldn't progress to the fact of them hurting or killing someone. Well, and not just not that just them seeking help, but for instance, you know, in the school system, for we have nothing. There's nothing for me. Like I have kids that I know need help. Yes, I have nowhere to send those kids. And there is absolutely no support system. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing I can make. Re- you know, I I'm legally bound to make a report to the counselor to do that. But after that. There's well, nothing. and even our counselors don't have... And that's where, yeah. I mean, you you look at the rise in suicides that happen with teenagers. Well, look at this. I mean, the suicide rate in Idaho is off the charts. It is. And, I mean, to think and how people... And I, I hear this a lot. I mean, I've battled with my own mental health, my own suicidal tendencies. That it's, well, you need to find something that makes you happy. Or they look at a teenager, like, what are you so upset about? Like, what is bothering you so much? Not knowing that their, their level of perception is different from an adult. Their life, that, that could be crumbling around them because of a breakup. Mm-hmm. Or because they got bad grades and it's going to disrupt their parents. You know, that can send a child in a spiral. I mean, I was there. Yeah. I did it. I lived four years in high school tiptoeing on eggshells, terrified of my parents, that I was going to upset them in some way, shape, or form that it then manifested into something larger when I had finally moved out. Yeah. And I didn't know how to cope with myself. That I see, and especially now with kids that I went to school with in St. Mary's, I mean, these kids are graduating and killing themselves. And it's heartbreaking. Yeah. You know, this rise in this small community alone, and then you look at Idaho as a bigger picture, that this is something that is becoming common. Well, well extremely what, common. What we're finding, too, is that mental health is a societal disease. Yes. And when I say that... Mental health is not just a sick society produces sick individuals. Mm -hmm. And so when you have an unhealthy society, you are going to have more people with mental illness. And this is something also for a long time that we have not, this is a change in the narrative that's happening that for a long time we denied that we blamed the victim. Yes. And there's still a lot of that that happens, unfortunately. And for instance, right now in the United States, opioid addiction is killing more people than automobile accidents. Yes. Let that sink in for a little bit, people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's, a, it's hard. It's a crazy situation mm-hmm. because, it, like you said, they do just mesh together when people think about mental illness mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. insanity. And it's... And it's because it's so complex. You know, for yes. so long, the narrative has been, well, you know, for a while, especially like I would say... Late 80s, 90s, the big narrative became, well, it's your brain chemicals, so we'll just pop you a pill. That's, it's much more than that. It's much more complex. It's a multi, you know, we talk, you hear a lot, I'm grateful we hear a lot more talk now about self-care. Yes. Mm -hmm. I don't think self-care 
gets talked about in a real and meaningful way. Too right. often it's, you know, make a blanket for it and watch Netflix. And that's not really what self-care is about. Right. Yeah. Um, it's hard. It's work. It's daily it work. And it's the individual, but it is also the support system around the individual. Exactly. It takes a village. It, it takes does. a village, baby. And it's like internally feeling that you you can reach out to people because, you know, people do. They blame the victim that you're seeking attention or you're just doing this for this reason or that reason or, oh, it was just a breakup. Why are you freaking out about it? There's more people out there. And not knowing the deeper side of the situation that there was probably a lot more to it than what was being portrayed on the surface. I think that people need to do more digging before they start talking about it. Right. Because... Like, I don't remember which case this was in, but someone, it was one of my cases, and don't remember, uh, Charles Cullen, it might have been him when he was, he was the nurse that was killing all Mm -hmm. of the, I hope that episode's come out, I think it has, (laughs) but um, he had, they had said he was suicidal for very long, and at one point in one of the articles that I read, they had said, that he was still depressed and suicidal, even though he had a new girlfriend. Like this new mm-hmm. girlfriend was supposed to like magically make his depression right. go right. away. And I think that that's something that not enough people understand is like just because there are good things happening to this person does not mean that this illness goes away. It yeah. doesn't mean that it changes how they feel inside. Right. And like you can have so many good things happening. But inside, you're just, like, crumbling to pieces. Mm -hmm. And I don't think... I think that's something that not enough people understand. Right. But, and again, taboo. It's Mm -hmm. not something that people want to hear. It's not Mm -hmm. something that people want to talk about. And in today's day and age, and I see it more frequently, a lot of people are talking about it. Mm -hmm. And I praise those people for coming out and being able to openly talk because that gives you that resource for help. It's that lending hand, that arm reaching out for Mm -hmm. you. Even if it's you initiating it, you're still letting people know, hey, this is how I'm feeling. This is what I'm going through. You know, now had that happened for this gentleman, I think maybe there could have been something that could have been done. Yeah. To save the trouble of what had happened, you know, Mm -hmm. to save everybody the injury, to save his wife from having to lose her life over what he was dealing with, you know, this Mm -hmm. evil inside of him that, that could have been it, that he just didn't know how to get the help that he needed. Yeah. But I don't necessarily see him as a victim, more so as he is still a perpetrator. He still does not excuse the murder at all. all. Yeah. I mean, what he did knowingly doing that and yeah. then in broad daylight, in your driveway for everybody to see, everybody to hear. Yeah. And I even mean, while people were coming out and like yelling and, still and it didn't, didn't, he stop, didn't him. stop, he had such a rage that he didn't care what was happening around him. That he just wanted was her to die. Was doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's nuts. And I think this is a great conversation to have, especially because I know all three of us have had our own issues with certain mental illnesses and stuff mm-hmm. like that, that I think this was a great conversation to be able to have. And I think that we need to make sure that our listeners know that, like, there are people that you can talk to. Mm-hmm. And there are places you can go. There's resources that you can reach out to even if like I know all three of us if you ever like need anything to talk to somebody like reach out to us Mm -hmm. and we are more than happy to talk or to listen or like whatever Mm -hmm. you need to maybe help you find the resources that you need or want to find Mm -hmm. and sharing stories with people I mean Mm -hmm. that I have found that to be almost therapeutic I mean Mm -hmm. I've gone through multiple therapists, multiple different medications to try and cope with everything that's been living inside of me and talking about it. Yes, it's still hard sometimes because it is a trigger when I'm by myself. And when I'm alone, I'm kind of stuck in my own mind. Like, wow, I I just said that. Like, I actually verbally said that to somebody. Like, somebody heard it from me. And then it's like, I'm reliving it again for just a little Mm -hmm. bit. But it's not as long as the time before. And And it's getting shorter and shorter each time I'm reaching out to people. And it is, and it, it is terrifying saying those things out loud for the first time because body shaking. (laughs) Yes. Because, and I've been there too. Like you've got all of these things that are making you crumble inside and it's always just been inside. And finally, like you say it out loud to somebody and it doesn't click 
the, mm-hmm. it like came out of your mouth. And then when it does, you're like, um, what do I do? Cause like, right. you don't know how to feel now that like somebody else has actually heard it out loud and it's not just replaying in your head. Right. But it, it does help. It the does. more you talk about it, mm-hmm. which to an extent, because we also have to look at the other side where there are people in this world who live to tear you down. And so you have to make sure that you find the right people to talk to. Because if you talk about some of these things, they will just say like, oh, you're just being Mm -hmm. dramatic. It's not that big of a deal, blah, blah, blah. And they're going to say all of these things that will make you feel worse. So Right. And never finding somebody that's going to take their what happened to them and almost make it like a one up from you or make you yes. feel like you're in competition for your pain because you're not, it, this right. is sharing to feel better. Yeah. And it, yeah. And the thing is there are great resources. Like yes. you said, we have suicide hotlines. You know, the beautiful thing is there's a lot of apps now yes. that offer counseling where you can do it over your phone through FaceTime. Yes. Yeah. And video chatting. Yes. Yeah. And I think, you know, there are some really great resources out there that haven't been available in the past. And mm-hmm. I do know, I did, I have looked into some of those apps, um, but for a while, a lot of them were 18 and up. You right. had to be an adult. But a lot of the, a lot of the problem in the world is our kids that are having issues that have nobody to talk to. Because and they're, they're starting so young. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's something that's so new to them that they don't understand. So they feel like I can't go to somebody because what if they, you know, look at me different. And I know that was a fear I had growing mm-hmm. up. Was if I were to say something to my parents, are they going to, and it was always, I always thought about it. Every scenario ran through my head, you know, what are they going to say? Good scenario, bad scenario, mediocre kind of, you know, a little bit in the middle. And it, that's what stopped me. I mean, there is a lot that I went through in life of not having answers to and having to deal with on my own. That was almost destructive as I got older. Yeah. That we are, you know, our kids should feel that they can talk to somebody. So it doesn't lead to things like what we talk about, you know, in the podcast, it, it's, I feel like there is a stopping point and we can, well, young stop pe- it. You again, know? young people need to know that suicide hotlines, some of those, yes. they don't care if you're 18. They're not yeah. going no. to check your age. Yeah. They just, they you want will you remain stand. anonymous. Mm-hmm. They, they will protect you. Mm-hmm. So, and there are some of the therapy apps that are now available for our, our younger teenagers where mm-hmm. I don't know. I think it's 13 and up. Which I think is a great age to start it because they're kind of like getting into their... Well, and that's that teen angst and the adolescents, you know, coming out and everything's changing with them. And not just that, but doctors. A lot of people don't know, but you can... doesn't matter what type of doctor it is. You can talk to that doctor and they can help put you in the right direction. Right? Well, and I know now a lot of the doctors ask these questions. Yes. Because... And that was... And they've done it for a long time because I know like before I was before I was able to like comfortably say anything about it out loud. Well, and I still, I've never gotten treatment from a doctor because it's still to this day. If I go to the doctor and they start asking you like, have you felt depressed in the last so-and-so mm-hmm. days? And in my mind, I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. But out loud, I'm like, nope, I'm good. <laughs> right. It's just like, and it's, it's a terrifying thing. Mm-hmm. And I still haven't gotten over that to be able to like say it out mm-hmm. loud to somebody who could get me help. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Who could send me in the right direction? I would rather talk to like one of you guys or like my friends right. or somebody else who that they, they know what I'm going through and I'm like openly able to talk about it. But like it's I don't know. It's a weird situation. But I think that a person with mental health, just me personally, I don't know about anybody else. But I know when I had gone started going to therapy just this last time where I was definitely more honest and I talked a lot more about what had happened in my past that. At the same time, the anxiety and the fear was there that, okay, if, I, if I'm brutally honest about something that I've been thinking about, but I've never wanted to act upon it, but that out of nowhere, like I get these, you know, thoughts or whatever, that is she going to take this and use it against me? Mm-hmm. That was always my fear that my kids are going to be in jeopardy because of something that I'm seeking help for that I know won't happen, but it still scares the shit out of me Yeah, that I want to talk about it, but... Again, I'm terrified that it would be turned around mm-hmm. and used against me. And that's something that, that, you know, my husband and I have talked about where it, that has also been a fear of his that, but he's always wanted me to talk about it. But it's something we talk about, you know, if you say something to somebody and they take it almost like the wrong way and they use it against you, are they going to admit you? Mm-hmm. Are you going to just 
be taken or, you know, where you can't tell us that you're going somewhere. You're going to be there for however long until they decide that you're okay to leave. And that is a fear. I don't want to have to feel that. I just want to feel safe that I'm talking to somebody, Yeah. you know, and I want people to feel that way as well, that they don't have to feel that fear. Well, just so you understand the the laws have changed mm-hmm. yeah, so much and maybe too much, but it is almost impossible to put an involuntary hold on an individual. I think the, the circumstances it, have to be so incredibly mm-hmm. extreme. Usually violent to, Yes, that you have to be in imminent danger or, or somebody else presenting an imminent danger right. to somebody else. And and the levels for that are pretty mm-hmm. far out there. Yeah. So, I think, yeah. Well, and know. that's like, I just, people shouldn't feel like that irrationally. You yeah. know, that's definitely not something that, because I was able to talk openly about these things, you know, where I, you know, the rage that I feel sometimes makes me want to hit somebody. And I've told her that. And it's, it was good to say it out loud because it was like, okay, it's gone. Like, yeah. it's gone. And I finally told somebody who now can help me turn it around and make it positive instead of destructive on myself. Yeah. I think that's that's a big thing for people to do because it is hard to talk about. And it is terrifying mm-hmm. to say these things out loud. But it needs to happen or it's not going to get better. Right. You're right. just going to keep internalizing it until you explode and then somebody's going to die. Right. <laughs> die. I mean, worst case scenario, Caitlin, I hope that's Always. Not like, just, just stay away from the meat cleavers. That's all i got to say today. Yeah, stay away from the meat cleavers. So... Well, this was quite the discussion. It, it was. was, yeah. It well, definitely led into something a yes, lot deeper, but I felt like something that needed to be talked about because it yeah. surrounded both cases kind of. Yeah. yeah. And you will definitely need to come back and yep. update us. Oh, yes. I would on your love case to when and that find gets, out what's going on with yeah, that. Yeah. This After I can catch up on everything else. Just screw everything else. You need to come and wait for this. You need to be eyeballing this the whole time. I will. <laughs> but, yeah, you need to come back more often. This is fun. Yeah. I enjoy so, this. I'd love to. So, thank you, Maria. Yes, thank you for having me. Thank you to our listeners. Check out our Facebook page. Our discussion page our on discussion Facebook. Pa- discussion page. I cannot talk. <laughs> Neither can I. We have an Instagram. We are at stateofcrimepodcast at gmail.com. And Twitter. Like and we've got, I've been tweeting. I'm pretty sure all of our handles are state of crime or yes. state of crime podcast. I think. I'm pretty sure, yeah. I'm pretty sure that Twitter is state of crime. I don't know. Anyway, You'll find us. State of Crime us, or yeah. State of Crime Podcast. One of the two. If you can't find us on one platform, just email us. We'll send you the rest. Yeah. So, state yeah. of Crime Podcast. So, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.